Our teaching text today comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt— you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt, into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward those people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians.
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In April of 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking in Memphis, and this was the famous I have been to the mountaintop speech. And he begins like this uh, early in the speech. He says, something is happening in Memphis. Something is happening in our world. And you know, if I were standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history up till now, and the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? I would take my mental flight by Egypt, and I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through, or rather across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, on toward the promised land. And in spite of its magnificence, I would not stop there. And it's this beautiful moment, a swelling moment in the speech as he uh, sort of traverses through these different moments of human history that he would like to witness. Uh, but, but he begins there with the story of the Exodus. And he, he ends up making the point uh, that through all the magnificence of, of those moments in history that we, that we survey, he's glad to be alive in the time that he is, that he, he senses the significance of um, the moment, of the life that he's living and the time that he's living it. And a little later, near the end of the speech, um, he recounts this story of um, being in New York City uh, at his first book signing, and this uh, terrible event happens. This woman uh, stabs him uh, as he's signing uh, these books, and um, it was, you know, you know, really close. It was touch and go as to whether he was going to survive. And uh, once the doctors, you know, got him stabilized, uh, they said basically, you know, the knife blade was so close to one of your major arteries that if you had even sneezed, um, it would have been the end of your life. Um, and, and Dr. King is, is expressing, you know, how grateful he is um, that his life was spared and, and that, he, that he's alive um, he says it so much better than I could summarize. He says, but I want to say tonight, I want to say tonight that I am too happy that I didn't sneeze. Because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream and taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy, which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962 when our brothers and sisters decided to straighten their backs. And whenever men and women straighten up their backs, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had sneezed, if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here in 1963 when the black people of Birmingham, Alabama aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. If I'd sneezed, I wouldn't have had the chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama to see the great movement there. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rallying around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I am so happy that I didn't sneeze. 
It's a beautiful moment. It is uh, the wisdom, the power, the charisma, the prophetic um, you know, uh, strength of, of a man who knows the moment that he's living in, who knows what he has had to endure to get there, who knows the narrow escapes, who knows the people who have come alongside of him, who knows the power of the community um, that he's in, that he's, he's helping to lead. Uh, but he also knows the community he's speaking to, the movement he's leading, is facing immense difficulty um, in the struggle. He knows that he is personally at risk at this time. And I love how he ends. There's such power in this. He says, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I have been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm so happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The power of Dr. King's life is shining through in, in those moments, in those words. The deep work that God has done in him and those around him and in their community is on full display. The freedom, can you, you can hear it in the words. And, and I, I do, you know, like, uh, it, it's, it's uh, so far away from his actual delivery, me just reading this. But you can even hear the freedom of fear falling away. Um, the beauty uh, of this movement he was leading is, is on display, even though it was wildly contested. And you hear this prophetic hope resounding through his words. Here is a man who's encountered God. Uh, who, who has been called, who has been faithful to that calling, who has received tons of help, who has seen a community grow up around um, this calling. It is such a powerful thing, uh, worth celebrating uh, th th this weekend and tomorrow and, and all throughout our year. But it is such a, a powerful thing to see a life, someone who has encountered God and lives out of the response to that encounter and brings others along with him, who does that in community. It's such a, a beautiful moment that we, we celebrate Dr. King here in Epiphany. Epiphany, as we said last week, as we said for years, um, it is a season where the church considers how do we live in response to the revelation of God in our lives, in our world. And I said last week, through Epiphany, part of what we're going to do is, is travel through the scriptures and, and look at these moments where people encounter God in these, these profound ways, wildly different ways, in wildly different circumstances, and, and how that encounter changes them, how it forms them, and how they live in, in community in response um, to, the, to those encounters. And so today, we have this calling of Moses that we just read in Exodus 3, and there are some overlaps in how Dr. King un understands his sense of calling and, and, and mission in the world, and, and what we see going on as, as Moses meets God um, in this burning bush moment, and his, his life is never the same. Literally, the world is never the same after this encounter. Um, he becomes a part, Moses becomes a part of God's emancipation project of saving his people and eventually um, continuing this covenant work of repairing and setting right the world. But there's a lot that happens in this initial encounter uh, that I want us to look at because I think it can help us. And so I, the passage begins um, 
in, in a very sort of uh, pedestrian place. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So here we meet this man, Moses, uh, the shepherd. This is Exodus 3. We've, we've already heard a little bit about this man. Um, actually, it's a little bit surprising that we meet Moses as a shepherd, um, given where he grew up, because he, he, uh, he, he grows up in a rather uh, spectacular place. And, and we'll get to this, but if you were to meet Moses at a few other different points in his life, you wouldn't have called him Moses the shepherd. Uh, we actually meet Moses the baby who's set to be killed um, at this moment where um, the Pharaoh uh, you know, who has forgotten Joseph and has begun, come to oppress um, the Israelite people and realizes that they're, they're, they're growing in population and he, he, he institutes this hor- horrific um, sort of policy that um, the Israelites have to kill their, 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 uh, their firstborn sons um, and so they have to kill their male, male children and so we first meet Moses when he's a baby set to be killed. And then later we meet Moses as this child who's found in the reeds um, by, by uh, someone from Pharaoh's house. And um, the, the, he's found, you know, if you saw the Charlton Heston movie, he's found and they're like, how do they know he's an Israelite baby? Because he has a, he has a Hebrew blanket, but more than likely the baby would have been clearly identified because he was circumcised. Um, but we have this boy who's taken, he's, 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 he's loved, um, he's brought into Pharaoh's house, um, and, and he grows up there with all the opportunity, with all the privilege that would have been afforded him in a place like that. So this he- Hebrew boy, this Jewish boy who is set to be killed, whose life is spared, narrowly he escapes, uh, he's brought into Pharaoh's house, and he grows up with all uh, the prestige and power of that, of that, you know, uh, um, of that place of the empire. But something's, you know, like stirring in Moses. And so we meet him again, and he, he, we meet him as a man with a sense of calling, or at least a sense of instinct towards justice. He sees an Egyptian man mistreating uh, one of his Hebrew brothers, um, and he tries to do something about it, but he steps in, and, and he has this instinct to, uh, to you know, to, to set his, his brother free, but he, he goes about it out of his own resources, and he ends up murdering this Egyptian man. And then later we know he has this other encounter with his Hebrew brothers and they, they throw it in his face that, that they know that he's a murderer. And so he has to flee. And so uh, he, he's, uh, he flees to Midian. He flees into this whole other life. And we meet him as this man in the wilderness who's sort of between two places. He's not really Egyptian, even though uh, he, was, he was raised in Pharaoh's house um, no one from Pharaoh's house, certainly no one of high standing in Egypt would ever have been caught as, as a shepherd. It was an absolutely despised profession. That's why they allowed other people to do uh, that work for them. Um, but he also doesn't feel fully Hebrew either. So he's in, in the wilderness and he's stuck between two places. And, um, and here we meet Moses Moses the shepherd. And uh, I want you to think about your, your life story. I think um, that exercise that Dr. King goes through in the speech where he, he recognizes those moments where uh, he narrowly escaped, was narrowly brought through, or s- things seemed absolutely impossible, and yet somehow he had arrived at the moment that he was at. And, and, and with Moses, the same thing. Like There's so many times where the story that we're about to see unfold wouldn't have happened. I have this thing 
that I sometimes do in my own life. I, I'm sure I, I'm not unique, but I'll, I'll daydream about what it would be like to go back to some point in my childhood, middle school or high school, with my full consciousness now, like what I know of the world, and what would I do differently, what would I study differently, would I play different sports, would I have different friends, you know, like what would I change about, about my life, and... Um, and usually sometime as I'm going through that mental exercise, a day, daydream and thinking about things I would do differently, I end up realizing like I really want to make sure that I don't change too much, you know, like the back to the future thing. I don't want to change too much because I, I do want to end up in the place that I am. So, you know, like there are superficial things and meaningful things even that I want to change, but I, I also recognize all those things feed into who I am, to the person God has made me. I wouldn't want to, to be with uh, you know, a, a, another spouse. I wouldn't want to not have these children. I wouldn't want to be and not be a part of, of, of Trinity Grace. And so all these narrow turns throughout my life. And, and I want you to think about your story in that way. Because Moses is a little bit taken back when he, when he hears the words God has for him. But on another level, he's the most He's the most qualified person in the world to do what God has him to do. No one else had been, you know, it was a Hebrew boy who was raised in Pharaoh's house and could, could go back and mediate what has to be mediated in this exchange. But here we find him as a shepherd in Midian. And I hope that will shed some light on our own life stories. Where, where are the places God might have been preparing us that we're, we're just not aware of yet of how those are going to come into focus in future days? You might be right around the corner from the moment where you encounter God in the most profound way you ever have. Maybe it won't be, a, more than likely, it won't be a bush on fire, but it, you could be right around the corner from the most profound encounter with God that you've ever had that changes your life and pulls all of these other events of your of your life story into perspective in a new way. And in Genesis, uh, already in the story, in Exodus, we see these types of reversals take, taking place in, in God's story all the time, right? Remember when Joseph was was in the in, in Pharaoh's jail, and then the next day he's brought in uh, to to sort of uh, speak to Pharaoh. He ends up becoming the ruler, and this is right. This is how. Uh, jo- uh, um, uh, Jacob's family comes to Egypt in the first place, right? They're spared from this famine because Joseph is there administrating the resources of Pharaoh's kingdom. And that happened right after he was in jail. And right, and these, these, these moments happen that just totally change our story. They totally change the outlook, the possibility, the horizons of our life. But now a Pharaoh had arose who had forgotten Joseph and the people of God are being oppressed we have to also assume, because it says that the people were crying out to, to God. We're going to get to that in just a f- few moments. But it doesn't say that they were specifically crying out to this God, to, to, to Yahweh. That they were just crying out uh, you know, against their oppression. And we come to realize that many of them had adopted the ways and even the gods of Egypt. So as we look at this first part of the story, we're meeting Moses the shepherd. And I want to ask you, where are you today? Are you certain that God has not been making you ready for something. So 
Moses meets God, this, this shepherd in, in Midian with his, all of his background. It's a somewhat bizarre encounter. He sees a bush on, on fire. This is a shepherd who knows what it is like to have to keep warm in the wilderness. And so it is a phenomenon to see a bush, you know, more than likely a smallish bush that is not burning up. Like what would it be like to have a you know, perpetual resource and be able to keep warm? And so he, he's drawn over by the natural phenomenon. God connects with him through the natural natural world. Um, and, and the Hebrew word for, for bush is sena, and it's literally one letter off from Sinai, which is the other name for this mountain. You know, it's called Horeb in the story, but the mountain is, is Sinai, where, where, where God dwells. And so uh, God is dwelling in this sena, in this fire, and he also dwells on Sinai, which he, he, he makes clear to Moses. So God speaks to Moses, and right away, it's powerful. Um, he says to him, Moses, Moses. And the, the scholars, the, the commentators call this uh, the repetition of endearment. Uh, in Hebrew culture, uh, it, it, when, when you said someone's name twice, it was a way of saying, I'm not just acknowledging you, I'm acknowledging you in affection, in friendship, in care. And so it would have been... Uh, Imagine the juxtaposition, right? You're drawing near this like weird natural phenomenon that's in, in, intriguing because of what it, it could, the possibilities it represents, and you get near, and then all of a sudden you hear your name spoken, but not just your name spoken, your name spoken in an unbelievably familiar, kind, affectionate way. This is this is is God drawing Moses in. So he's drawn in, but then right away it's a fire, right? You can't just like run run up to it, and so a fire is speaking to you affectionately. And uh, it, it, it's hard to wrap your mind around. And we, we, we see even early on something that's going to show up in Moses' story over and over again is human beings interacting with the holiness of God. And this is part of the covenant of redemption and covenant of repair is making it so that we as human beings can stand being in the presence of God's holiness without utterly coming undone, without utterly falling apart, without utterly dying. Like uh, over and over again in these early stories in Torah, you see people like if... To see God would be to utterly come apart. And so um, this, this fire is speaking to Moses in an inviting, affectionate way of friendship. And yet he says, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. Right? So this, this, the love, the invitation of God, and yet the holiness of God. And this is a tension we see all throughout the story, all the way up to, up to the person of Jesus, up to the cross. And I love how... Uh, God introduces himself and makes himself known to Moses. You know, you think about this man, like we fly through the text. He's been a shepherd in Midian for 40 years. <laughs> or, or, or he's 40, you know, 40 years old. He's, he's, he must have thought like all the excitement of my life has, ha has happened. And now I, I live as a shepherd. Uh, he's, he's, he's married. I live in Jethro's, Jethro's home. There's nothing more that's going to happen in my life. I'm just going to live out a, re a repetition of these days over and over again. This is one of the things that I've wrestled with the most uh, in, you know, since quarantine is like how many days, because we have to stay inside so much, they feel like, you know, like they're just on repeat and so many of the same things happen. And Moses must have certainly felt like there was nothing new going to come crashing into his life, and yet uh, God speaks to his true identity. He speaks uh, to his, his Hebrew identity. He says, I, I am the God of your, uh, uh, of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And at that, it says, Moses hides his face. Now, I think that is a, a mixture both of the holiness of God and the friendship of God. Have you ever had a moment like that? Um, 
where someone speaks something so personal, so beautiful, so it just touches that spot in you and you just trap your head and you say, oh, I'm known. I, I have this really distinct memory. I've, I've shared with you guys this sto- um, some of the stories uh, over the years of, of these encounters I had with God in London in 2017 and um, there's no other way to, to, for me to say it except God took me through what felt like you know, four years of therapy in one week. Um, but he just kept bringing all these people that didn't know me uh, to speak really specific words about my life to me. And uh, it is one of those kind of like burning bush moments in, in my experience with God. And I remember being prayed for in this pastor's basement and I just met these people and they were praying for me. And, and a few of the things they spoke over me, it was like they had read the journals of my life from, from, from childhood. And I just remember dropping high my face and it was both in awe and in joy it was in friendship and in tenderness it was just like oh I am seen what a thing and you see that that moment for Moses he, he hides his face and then God begins to tell him his heart right this isn't just an encounter where God does a, a one a sign and a wonder for Moses and he's like look I, I'm a powerful God he says no I want you to join in with me and 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 my project of setting my people free I want you to join in with me in this project of emancipation and he tells him why he says I have heard the cry of my people. Even if they weren't directing that cry many of the times to me, I have heard the cry of the afflicted. And and God is going to be really intense. That if you read the stories of the plagues and you take them seriously, um, what God brings about in Egypt is really intense. It brings up some questions for us about what is the wrath of God? What, what is God up to even as he's setting his people free? And I think there's a couple of things to say here. The Hebrew word for justice, mishpah, is um, it, it means to set things right. It is a, a restorative justice. It is not just a, a wrath that has to do with punishment for punishment's sake. And um, over and over again, God, God is saying, I, I'm doing this so that, so that Israel might know me. But also, he says, I'm doing this so that Egypt might know me. And then later, he specifically says, I'm doing this so that Pharaoh might know me. And the Hebrew word yada is this experiential, personal, intimate knowledge. God wants to set his people free. He has a covenant to fulfill that he made all the way back with Abraham to repair the world through these people. But he also has love for the Egyptians. And he says, I want them to yada me as well. And for even Pharaoh to yada me, to know me in this experiential way. A really quick aside, and I don't want to take too much time on this, but there's some fascinatingly interesting things in the Hebrew here that connect this story to another story that we famously think about with, with God's wrath. There are, there are four Hebrew words that show up in, in this story of, of Moses and the Exodus that they're really only found in this way in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, another story that sort of calls to mind like, what is this God really about? Why is he so intense? in what looks like um, th- th- this punishment. The-, the four words are hathan, which means bridegroom of blood, uh, which-, which comes up in just a moment in- in, uh, because there's a wild moment where right after he calls uh, Moses to be an- his emancipator, Yahweh comes to try to kill Moses. What on earth is happening?
happening. His wife Sephora saves his life in, a, in the most bizarre circumstances, circumcises their child and saves Moses' life. It's a very weird story. Exodus 4, if you want to read it. But in there, uh, it, 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 you know, it is uh, Hathan, this bridegroom of, of blood is mentioned. There's also the word for wicked, Risha. Um, and this is a particular description of wickedness. It doesn't just mean like, uh, indi- you know, individual sin. It is the type of wickedness that causes the cry of oppression. Rasha is a type of wickedness that apparently was taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's apparently taking place in Egypt. It is a wickedness that causes the cry of oppression. And that cry of oppression is another of the Hebrew words that link these stories. And it's Zehekah, which is this cry of oppression. This is different from your ordinary grief that all of us experience in human life. This is the, the, the grief of someone uh, oppressing you or, or doing injustice to you or taking something that is rightfully yours. We see it, um, if you want to pay attention, uh, you know, why does God show up in Sodom in the story? It's not, the story doesn't say he shows up because, because he saw their sin. The story says he shows up because the cry of the oppressed had, had risen up to him. That there was a zehekah, the cry of oppression. The only other little mention of this we have is when Esau's blessing is stolen by his brother Jacob. And right in that moment, he, cry, he gives a zehekah, a cry of oppression. And then God comes to Shaphat. He comes to judge, but not just to judge in the way of doling out punishment, which is sort of how we sometimes hear it. He comes uh, to, to Shaphat, which is the, 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 of the, root, the, the same root as Mishpat, which is this restorative justice. He has come to set things right. Why did God show up in Sodom? There was a Zehekah, and so he comes to Shaphat. Why does God show up here to uh, liberate his people from Egypt? A Zehekah had, had risen up to him, and, and he has come to Shaphat in order to mishpat, in order to bring restorative justice. When there is a wickedness that causes the bitter cry of oppression, God will hear the cry, you can be certain, and God will come to give judgment in that he will come to restore order to the chaos. So his express purpose is not to just dole out punishment on the Egyptians. Actually, he goes deity by deity through this empire structure that had captured their imaginations and rooted them in all these uh, false claims of power and false claims of worship. And he dismantles this structure that held Egypt captive and then allowed Egypt to hold others captive. He dismantles that structure in order to bring them into mishpah, into true freedom. God tells Moses, essentially, I have seen. I have seen, I have heard, and I am concerned. The cry of the afflicted has risen up to me. I want you to go and tell Pharaoh to release my people. And Moses has a really understandable response in that moment. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And commentators will speak about this in different ways. On one level, there's like a a give and take, a call and response that in in Semitic culture uh, in this time would have been appropriate when someone was calling you to something. It would have been polite to initially refuse and to act like you weren't, you know, in a humble way to act like you weren't ready. So there's a politeness that comes through. There is a humility that comes through. But as we know that what falls out from the rest of the story is Moses is not asking this this question rhetorically. He's not just going through a, a, a polite moment. He is actually saying, who am I? 
I am in the middle of an identity crisis. I am stuck between these two stories. I am stuck between these two places. How can I be the person that comes and participates with you in the liberation of your people? And this calls us back to that wild story that I just mentioned in Exodus 4. Right after God calls Moses, he's on his way to Egypt and God comes to kill him and his wife Sephora um, circumcises his son. Now, why is that so important? It's the sign of the covenant. It's an evidence of the identity crisis that Moses was in, that essentially he wasn't fully identifying with the Hebrew people. He was living in some other middle place of the story. And Zephorah, who isn't even Hebrew, somehow recognizes that, circumcises their child, and 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 touches the, the, the foreskins to his, his feet, which is a bizarre moment. But then later in Exodus 5 and 6, uh, Moses is, is still wrestling with his identity crisis. And he basically says, I speak with faltering lips, is how some of the translations say it. But actually the, the Hebrew is, I speak with uncircumcised lips. He still doesn't feel like he's truly a part of this movement, a truly a part of, uh, uh, of these people. He hasn't fully identified with them. And so Moses is having this identity uh, crisis, and I love how God responds to it. He's like, who am I? What am I going to do? How will I make this happen? This is impossible. This is the most powerful empire in the world. How will I just pull, you know, like re- retrieve your people from, 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 from Egypt? And, and <laughs> but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and, I, and, and, and this will be the sign to you um, that, is, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship on this mountain. Now, uh, maybe I'm, I'm trying to milk humor out of this, but to me, I think that is uh, kind of hilarious. God's like, how on earth are we going to do this? And God says, listen, I'll be with you. And then when, when it's all done, we'll have a party here on this mountain. It's like, well, yeah, God, but we skipped a few steps. Like, how are you actually going to do the thing you've called me to do? Um, h- how are we going get, to get them out? And it's in God's heart, right? All of God's answer is essentially in that first response, I will be with you. I will be with you. I haven't just given you a map to follow and you take these turns and these turns and these turns and you're going to end up at the right place. He says, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to make you a promise. Actually, whatever the gods that my people have come to worship in Egypt, when I pull them out of Egypt, so, so Yahweh knows there's, there's the work of getting uh, Israel out of, out of Egyptian control, but he also knows so there's the work of getting Egypt out of his people. And, 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 and reframing their heart, their mind, their culture as a people. And so he says, essentially, whatever they're worshiping now, they're going to be called out. I will be with you, and they're going to come, and they're going to worship me on this my mountain, this, this, this Sinai place. And so um, Moses comes in. He kind of has this very bizarre um, you know, thing that he's supposed to tell Pharaoh. Tell him we want to go away for a three-day journey. That's always been a little bit weird to me. Why does he say three-day journey when he knows they're leaving for, you know, forever? And uh, I came across this by Doug Stewart, who's a commentator on this, and it was really helpful. Three-day journey uh, it was an idiom in the ancient world for a major trip with formal consequences. Pharaoh would have heard it that way and would also have heard it as meaning we want to leave Egypt for however long we choose. Moreover, the demand for the people to offer sacrifices to the Lord was yet another way of implying without quite saying it in so many words that the people would leave Egypt um, since 
as develops later in the, in the actual events, um, uh, they're, they're going to go to Sinai and be completely out of and free from any Egyptian oversight, having taken their possessions with them. And so uh, we know that uh, God is going to set his people free all the, all the way. And these, these sort of like um, strange details in the story you know, guide us to, to, to a more full understanding. But what is set up here now, once Moses has been called, is this struggle uh, that carries us through the rest of the story between empire and shalom. And I, I love that. There's uh, you know, other ways to de- describe it, you know, the, the, the God of Israel and the gods of, of Egypt and these different ideologies. I, I was really helped by the work of, of Ray Vanderlaan and Marty Solomon in understanding um, the sort of the contrast of these two realities of empire, which shows up in Egypt, but also shows up in Rome and many other places in, in the history of our, of our world. Um, and it's the, the comparison of these two stories and, you know, Israel's entire life in, in Egypt wasn't all oppression, right? Actually, the land that they had given, if you look back to the story of Jacob and his sons coming and Joseph saving them and sparing them, they're given the land of Goshen. Um, and uh, National Geographic did a study a couple of years back on the richest farmland in the world. And a couple of them were in America, and there's like six feet of topsoil in the Great Plains and a couple of places in the Pacific Northwest. In Goshen, even now, there is a hundred feet of topsoil. Like, it is the richest farmland in the world. And this is the place where the Egyptians worked, uh, sorry, where the Israelites worked for part of the year in, in Pharaoh's world is they, they harvested the crops and, they, and they, they, they grew this agricultural society. And, and Egypt was known for their building and for their tools and for their, for their, for their metalworks. And yet, uh, every, every year, the, the Goshen plain would flood and the Israelites would have to come into these other parts of Egypt and they would work. And eventually, right, they were the Pharaoh who knew, who knew Joseph, forgot, you know, forgot them and they were, they were oppressed. And, uh, and this sort of tension between empire and shalom grows and grows and grows. And, and, and um, Ray Vanderland says, basically, like, if we have bought into the biblical narrative, there should be shalom brought to chaos. That's what God is calling Moses to participate in, is shalom being brought to chaos. That the outsider would be brought in. That they would be put back uh, in their proper place, things that are broken. That is what shalom is. But if we brought into the wrong narrative, to the narrative of empire, it means that some people are expendable. The poor, the refugee, the alien, the orphan, the widow, the elderly. These are the people who are pushed to the edges because they don't, they don't matter in the power structure in the same way. He says, Ray says, if you see a culture where life is cheap and sacrifice of others is acceptable to sustain your own obsession with pleasure and entertainment and wealth, you are living in the wrong story. Some of the problems America is facing today are not new problems. They are just problems of empire that have been present for centuries and centuries. When you see Pharaoh depicted in the hieroglyphics, he's always holding this staff. And so God um, sends Moses, his servant, in with, with, with what? Right, with a crooked shepherd's staff himself, like grabbed out of the wilderness, not this royal opulent symbol of power by which Pharaoh keeps people under his rule, but actually Moses comes in with the staff of God retrieved from the wilderness 
to, to, you know, to, to push against the reality of this empire. Over and over again, when you see it, whether it's in e- Egypt or whether it's in Ro- Rome, eventually we see in the New Testament, empire is characterized by a, a, f- a few things on repeat. There's systemic centralization of power, right? Power is accumulated into one place. The structure... Um, it uh, is secured by socioeconomic and military power, and then that power is religiously legitimized through certain myths that are that are told in all the different, uh, you know gods of Egypt that are going to be confronted in the plagues. And then we have this sustained proliferation of, of imperial images that capture the imagination of the population. And so the plagues are going to come and they're going to address these very sort of like pillars of empire. But I think it's really important to say this, whether we're talking about Egypt or whether we're talking about aspects of our culture, we're not doing simple denunciation. We're not just saying this is bad and get out of this. We're actually saying, no, we're calling you to something. Uh, God is calling us to something much more rich. He's calling Israel to that, but he's also calling Egypt to that, to come out of this this, uh, sort of grip of empire and into a place of shalom where things are set right, where mishpah and where justice is done, right? And, and uh, right, it's so important for us to remember in, in our country that America is not Israel, that our country has been really and importantly blessed in, in a bunch of different ways. But when we start, to, we start to drift into empire, when we only want to exalt the good parts of our story and we ignore the parts of our story that are oppressive, that are violent, that are racist, that, that are, that are uh, canceling out or oppressing or putting in slavery whole groups of people, that's when we start to have bought into the, to the, to the message of empire in our world. And God will always call his people truly back to Mishpah, to to true restorative justice. He will say, I've got to get my people out of Egypt and I've got to get Egypt out of my people. And there are some times where God will, will say to us, you can, you can love America, you can be patriotic and still say there are things that need to be acknowledged, there are things that need to be changed, there are things, there, are, there is mishpah that needs to be done and we can do that how? With God, participating with Him and confronting these, uh, these idolatrous power structures that get a grip on our culture, but also we have to get a grip on our own hearts. Our first allegiance is to God, and we have to absolutely remember that. So, there's so much to say about this story. Moses meets God at the burning bush. God calls him into this emancipation project. He has heard the cry of his people. He's going to send this man to set him free. He's going to con- uh, confront all these s- structures of empire and set his people free. And so, really quick, just a couple of implications for your own heart, for my own heart, is pay attention. <laughs> pay attention to how the story begins, right? He's going through a very ordinary day and God speaks to him. And initially it's just something a little bit out of order or something a little bit out of the ordinary. And he presses in and he pays attention and he begins to hear the speaking voice of God. Another thing to remember is that when God calls, God's call is so often the call to bring shalom. This is a God who empowers emancipators, who empowers those people who, who, who are going to help, help other people be free. The other 
absolutely essential part of Moses' call is that God promises he will be with him. God will be with you in what God calls you to do as you follow that call. The most important part of that is that God is with you every step of the way. And sometimes the work absolutely feels impossible. It's like this you know, poor shepherd who doesn't even have his own sheep. He's tending the sheep of his father, father-in-law Jethro, and he's supposed to go to the richest, most powerful nation in the world and demand the systemic change. And there's just absolutely no way that it's going to work. And yet God sort of casually says, I'll I'll be with you. The work may seem impossible. And again, we're not just doing denunciation and say, Egypt, you're bad. Egypt, you're wrong. We're we're doing invitation to something more true, to something better, to what Jesus will come on and eventually call abundant life. So my question is for you to pray through as we close today is how can this God use your life to bring freedom and maybe it won't initially happen on grand dramatic scales, uh, you know, like we see in this story. But how can God use your life to bring freedom to those around you, to those you're in close relationship with, to, the, to your children, to, 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 your, to your spouse, to people that you work with, to people in your neighborhood, to people in our city who are in need? How could God use the life of our community to bring freedom? How can God use your life to show other people that he has heard their cry? What if you got to be the the incredible privilege of being an answer to someone else's prayer? I didn't even know that God was listening to me, and yet you coming into my life is evidence that God has heard my cry. What a powerful thing. What are the ways God can use you to show the way of shalom over the way of empire? Perhaps it will begin as it began for Moses in realizing that God is near, in realizing that God is speaking, and realizing that God knows your name. You realize the exchange of names is so powerful there. Yahweh comes and says, Moses, Moses, I know your name, but not just that. I know you in, in, in friendship. I know you in affection. I know you in love. And then he, he gives Moses his name. Tell, tell them I am sent you. That, that exchange of names is so powerful. And a lot of times when we come to encounter the presence of God, as we're talking about in Epiphany, it is an exchange of names. God gives us the true name of our real identity, no matter what identity crisis we're in the middle of. And then he speaks his name over us. He, he says, I am, right? He also says, I'm the bright and morning star. I am mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. I am Emmanuel, God with us. I am the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. I am the savior. I am the redeemer, right? All these different names of God, sometimes our, our encounters with him are, are, are just an opportunity to remember his name in the face of our identity crisis is his identity. Do you know that God knows your name and he says it twice a repetition, a repetition of endearment. Perhaps it will begin in God calling you to realize He's near. Perhaps it will begin with practicing God's presence on a daily basis and practicing the freedom that God gives on a daily basis. I, I think perhaps the highest opportunity we have in any given day is to commune with God. The highest opportunity of that day The practice of freedom is to give our hearts fully to God, is to surrender that control, is to bring even our identity crisis before Him to that place of hearing Him call our name. I believe Dr. King had been practicing that because if you remember 
the confession prayer that we read this morning. He wrote that in 1953. The speech I read at the beginning was 1968, and we know, right, that's just one span of his life, but he had been practicing this freedom, practicing the presence of God, practicing confessing his heart to God. And that's something that's our invitation as well, to remember God knows our name. He's inviting us to know his. And God has shalom work for you to do today. Church, God has shalom work for you to do this year. Practice today. Practice his presence. Practice living in and expressing that freedom. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, may we experience your nearness. May we experience your speaking voice. May we experience your invitation to join you in emancipation, product, uh, emancipation projects and, and bringing freedom and, and declaring mishpah and working for restorative true justice in our world. Would you give us wisdom? Would you help us navigate all the challenges of the information that is coming at us with such uh, uh, you know, like an overflow, an avalanche of information? Help give us wisdom in the middle of that. Help us to, to hear your voice speaking our true name, teaching us who you really are. And then may we live out of that communion on a daily basis to participate in your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We need you to lead us by your Holy Spirit in this epiphany season. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.